the good news is we have learned a ton about this virus in the last two years. So if the question is, how do we manage this moving forward? I want infections to be at such a level that our healthcare system isn't overwhelmed. I want to make sure that for businesses and schools, you can get back to having in-person full-time schools and not worry about large outbreaks in schools that'll send everybody home. So we're not going to get to zero infections, and that's not the goal. But the goal is, let's do the things that are really important to us in our society and do it in a way that doesn't cause deaths to spike, doesn't cause our healthcare system to get overwhelmed. That was Ashish Jha, a physician, health policy researcher, dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, and incoming White House COVID response coordinator. Dr. Jha is recognized globally as an expert on pandemic preparedness and response, as well as on health policy research and practice. He has led groundbreaking research on Ebola and is now on the front lines of the COVID-19 response, leading national and international analysis of key issues and advising state and federal policymakers. He previously led the Harvard Global Health Institute and taught at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Harvard Medical School. We look forward to checking in with him today on the current state of COVID-19 and work being done at Brown University on the impact of long COVID on people, economies, and societies. We will also discuss how we should be planning for the future. Today's episode is sponsored by Genomic Life. Genomic Life is accelerating the adoption of medical innovation, turning personal genetic insights into powerful clinical actions, bringing the science of today to the medicine of tomorrow. Dr. Ja, welcome. We're delighted to have you. Thank you for having me here. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, wonderful. Well, let's start with a note of optimism. We appear to be turning a corner and entering a more optimistic period of the pandemic with so many indicators uh, moving in a more positive direction. Case rates and hospitalizations and death all are on the decline. And we've seen just in the past couple of weeks, many jurisdictions, schools and businesses lifting mask mandates. So would love your perspective on, does this mean we're entering a new phase relative to moving from endemic and out of pandemic? So first and foremost, we are absolutely moving into a better phase. We are done with the Omicron surge. Uh, Infection numbers are basically back below where they were before the Omicron surge began. Deaths are still high, but they are coming down. They always lag three to four weeks behind. So that's not a total surprise. Um, It will take a few more weeks before those really get down. So then the question is, what is this phase? How long does it last? Are we moving into something that's going to look like this for a long time? Are we going to get future variants? There's a lot unknown. What I would say is we should absolutely assume that the spring and probably the summer in most parts of the country and early fall should likely be pretty good with low levels of infection and hospitalizations and deaths. But we've got to prepare. We've got to prepare for new variants and we've got to prepare for future surges and we've got to prepare for living in a, in a world where this virus still has a lot of uncertainty ahead of it and not making assumptions that it's somehow all over or it's all behind us. It may be, but I don't think we can count on that. I want to come back to kind of how do we learn to live with this in just a minute, but kind of back to this, are we entering a new phase and your notes of positivity around the spring, summer, and fall? Do you think that means we are moving into endemic? Yeah. And what does endemic mean? What does that really mean from a practical perspective to our listeners? Right. So the, yeah, so you did not hear me use the word endemic yeah. on purpose <laughs> yes. for, for two reasons, really. Um, one is 
lots of different definitions of what is an endemic disease, endemic virus. And the second is endemic is not necessarily mean good. It can be endemic at a very high level and cause a lot of suffering and death, or something can be endemic at a low level. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know if we're entering an endemic phase. What I know is that the last surge is really over. There clearly is a seasonal pattern to this virus, which makes me think there will be more surges. And there have been a lot of surprises in terms of variants. And so I'm not thinking that we're somehow into this kind of end game of this virus, that somehow we're in the, in the finish of the pandemic. Instead, what I'm the way I look at it is we're entering a good period. It could last months, it could last longer. And we ought to prepare for future uncertainties. So no matter what Mother Nature throws at us, we'll be ready and we'll be able to manage it effectively. Yeah. All right. So I love that because I think that does bring us to, okay, so let's learn to live with this. This is not going away. Anybody who is wishful thinking, who hoped and prayed that one day where it would be a world without COVID is probably not going to see that day anytime soon. So we do need to learn to live with it. It is, to your point, seasonal. We will likely see new variants emerge. So how do we prepare for that? And how do we, you know, from a practical perspective, prepare for that, psychologically prepare for that? You know, what are your thoughts as we move forward into other cycles of this virus in the future? Great question. And obviously, uh, one that has multiple parts to it. The good news is we have learned a ton about this virus in the last two years. And every variant, you know, they all have their own features and and such, but they have a certain set of things that are consistent across every variant. It's an airborne disease. It spreads largely indoors, especially when you have large numbers of people crowded together in poorly ventilated spaces. Our vaccines have held up pretty well across all the variants, certainly at preventing severe disease. So if the question is, how do we manage this moving forward? And the way I look at what it means to manage this virus is the following. I want infections to be at such a level that our healthcare system isn't overwhelmed. So if you have a heart attack or a stroke or can do a car accident, there are plenty of hospital beds to take care of you, right? So we need to keep infections low enough and hospitalizations low enough so that our healthcare system functions. I want to make sure that for businesses and schools, you can get back to having in-person full-time schools and not worry about large outbreaks in schools that'll send everybody home. So we're not going to get to zero infections, and that's not the goal. But the goal is Let's do the things that are really important to us in our society and do it in a way that doesn't cause deaths to spike, doesn't cause our healthcare system to get overwhelmed. And in that manner, in my mind, there are sort of three or four major principles of, of how we do this. First is we have got to keep plugging away on vaccinations. The reason healthcare systems get overwhelmed is because not enough people are vaccinated and either unvaccinated or unboosted people get infected, they get really sick, they end up in the hospital, and that overwhelms the health system. Look, if we had 90, 95% of Americans who are eligible, fully vaccinated and boosted right now, our healthcare system would have barely noticed the Omicron surge. That's the bottom line. Unfortunately, that's not where we are. So we've got to do everything we can to get more people vaccinated, because that's the probably the most important thing to keeping our health system functional. Second, is we have to work on indoor air cleaning. Now, this is going to sound like a funny topic, but the way I look at it is, you know, it used to be a time in human history when, when you drank water, you had a pretty high likelihood of getting sick. We didn't tell people, okay, keep boiling water forever. What we did was we built up sanitation systems and we did a lot of things so that now when I opened up my tap and get a glass of water, I'm not worried about, is that water going to make me sick? 
Right now, you walk into buildings, poor ventilation, poor air quality. That means one person in there with COVID can spread it to 20 people. We've got to work on improving indoor air quality. It'll help with COVID. It'll help with the flu. That's got to be an important part of our strategy. And then just a couple more things. I think we've got to be at a place where we have widespread cheap testing available. Um, We're making progress there. I want to get to a place in the country where there's so much testing available that anybody wakes up, little cough, little fever, test themselves. They're positive. Now they don't have to go in and infect others. That can help a lot. And we're getting close to that. And then last but certainly not least is therapeutics. The big problem with this virus is it is actually much more deadly than the flu, especially for unvaccinated people. It's a pretty serious infection. And if we have treatments that can turn it into something really mild, that changes the game because the day you wake up with that fever and a cough and you test and you're positive, you call your doctor, you get a prescription for Paxlovid, it's a five-day course and you recover. Boy, it just doesn't feel like a pandemic anymore. Not in the same way. But we still have work to do to make those therapeutics enough of them and make them widely available. If we do those things, I am pretty confident no matter what mother nature throws at us, we're going to be able to manage our way through it. That's great. I love that you mentioned all four of those, and they don't seem completely insurmountable. Maybe a year ago they did, but we have made so much progress in this past year. And many of those things that the president commented just recently in his State of the Union address, I wanted to come back to a couple of them. Maybe I'll start with the first one that you started with on vaccinations. And We certainly have a number of people who have not yet received any vaccine. And then there are many others who have gotten their one or two doses, and they've also gotten the booster and are also starting to question, well, is it time for me to get the next booster or the next cycle of my annual vaccine? So I think the next order of questions is, what does it mean to be vaccinated? And is that changing for whom they already are vaccinated? Any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a very good question. And and Unfortunately, there's some things we know, and there are places where we just don't have very good data yet, so it'll be harder to say. But let's talk about what we do know. I am very clear, based on all of the evidence and all of the data, that adults, and probably kids, need three doses. This is a three-dose vaccine. And I'm thinking about Moderna and Pfizer, and actually probably even a three-dose vaccine for J&J, though maybe with J&J you can get away with two. But it's a three-dose vaccine where the third dose really has to come at least four to six months after your second dose. What that does is it does two things. It gives you much higher levels of antibody protection, which does wane over time. So that's the part that people worry about, do I need a fourth dose? But the second thing that three doses do for you is they really help your immune system mature in a way that they can handle the virus. And that does not wane. The T-cell, B-cell maturation that you get with three doses does not appear to wane over time. And what that means in my mind is if you are three doses and let's say you're six, seven months out and you're worried, should I get a fourth dose? Right now, I have not seen enough evidence to suggest a fourth dose for anybody. But what I'm saying is you are still very well protected against severe disease. And that's critical. Now, it may be that for high-risk people, they need a fourth dose. It may be, and maybe even probable, that we all need an annual booster. We're going to know more about that, I think, in the weeks and months ahead. But three doses is critical, and that is what gives you the protection against severe disease that matters most. Great. Okay. And I referenced the president's comments the other night, and he spoke specifically about test and treat, and that really is about making testing 
widespread and affordable and available to your point, but that also that immediately upon testing positive, treatments in the form of therapeutics are available. So you said we've made progress, but we're not fully there yet. In practical terms, are we a month out, three months out, six months out for that being reality for most of us? In my mind, the number one priority are the high-risk immunocompromised people. I want to get to a point where the first group is that if you are immunocompromised, you might have gotten three or four doses of vaccines. You may still not have enough protection. When do we get to a point where every immunocompromised person can immediately get therapy? And I think we're very, very close to that now. We now have enough doses of most therapeutics that if you're immunocompromised, you can get treated. That's critical because those are the people who obviously get really sick and can die very quickly. So making sure therapeutics are available for them. Then the next group is what I sort of think of as a higher risk group, older people, people with chronic diseases. That's a big group of Americans. We are probably several months out. So maybe by late spring into early summer, we'll have enough doses that anybody who's at all high risk, if they get infected, will have pretty readily available therapeutic options. It might come a little earlier than that, but probably it's not right away. For the rest of America, a healthy 35-year-old or a healthy 20-year-old, that may be more like end of summer, fall is my best guess. And again, the people are working really, really hard to ramp up production of these therapeutics. But we may be still four or six months away from a point where anybody can walk into a CVS or a Walgreens and pick up their Paxlovid, you know, with a doctor's order, just because these are complicated therapeutics to make and companies that are making them are going as fast as they can. But obviously also there's a global pandemic and other countries are trying to make them as well. So there is a little bit of a pathway here that we have to be a bit patient but I want to get the high-risk people covered as quickly as possible. That's actually a more encouraging timeline than I thought you were going to say. So for the most risk, you know, they are within the next few months. And then for the rest of the, the population, late summer, early fall, it is, is very reasonable. Again, given all the other considerations you mentioned regarding manufacturing and production and the global distribution and, and supply. So um, that's that's encouraging. That's great. And of course, worth remembering that if you're vaccinated and boosted and otherwise not immunocompromised, if you have a breakthrough infection, it's going to be mild anyway. So you probably don't even need therapeutics. Mm-hmm. It's really for that rare person in that category who might need therapeutics. But for vaccinated, boosted people who are not in super high-risk groups, it's not totally clear you're going to need therapeutics. I had lots of friends who've gotten breakthrough infections with Omicron who were kind of miserable at home for like two, three days and then got better. I do think that the high-risk group is the group, obviously, we care most about because they're the ones who tend to get sick. And I do think it's months away, not certainly not years, and it's not nine or 12 months. It's probably in the next few months that that, that group is going to be able to get what they need. I'm talking with Dr. Ajish Jha. This is a Business Group on Health podcast. We'll be back right after the short break. Businesses have faced many complex challenges over the last two years creating considerable changes in workforce needs and benefits strategies. Today, you need genomic life. Our genetics dictate how our bodies develop, handle disease, and respond to medications and treatment. Applied genomics is one of the most significant medical innovations of our lifetime. Genomic life unlocks insights previously hidden in your employee's DNA and converts them to meaningful actions. Actions that will radically transform your employees' healthcare journeys, allowing them and their doctors to take precise, personal, and proactive approaches to their health. Genomic Life, bringing the science of today to the medicine of tomorrow. 
I would like to transition. You mentioned, you know, the global supply distribution. You know that our audience largely are global employers with employees and their family members all around the world. And and we also see that there's some disconnect in places like here in the United States and in other countries in in the UK. They're dropping mitigation strategies, and we're moving into this more positive phase. While there are other locations like Hong Kong that's kind of implementing and putting more restrictions in place. So help us think about that from a, a global you know, workforce perspective. How should employers think about taking a varied approach to supporting their employees and family members all around the world? Yeah, it's a complicated question. The short answer is that you can see a lot of variations around the world. So let's kind of talk at a high level what's happening globally, and then we can talk about specifics. We're making great progress on global vaccinations. About uh, 60 some odd percent of the world has now gotten at least one shot. Ten and a half, almost 11 billion doses into people's arms. Really good progress. There are a couple of areas where progress has been very slow and real problems. The biggest one is the African continent. There's been vaccination rates are kind of in the teens now, moving slowly. I would say until now, it's largely been a supply problem, just not enough vaccine doses getting out to Africa. Over the next month or two, I expect that to flip. If you remember back to the US in early 2021, for months, it was, oh my God, no one can get a vaccine. It was almost a hunger game for vaccines. And then all of a sudden, one day it flipped where there were plenty of vaccines and then it became an issue of demand. That's going to happen globally in the next couple of months. There's good news and bad news. I mean, the good news is, again, production of vaccines continues and we'll have plenty. The bad news is that the demand is going to be a problem. There's a lot of vaccine misinformation that you know goes well beyond our own shores. So employers can do a lot in helping their employees get vaccinated in places where that misinformation is rampant and where people are not getting vaccinated. In terms of mitigation, Hong Kong, you mentioned, part of the problem right now is China has done a very good job of vaccinating its population. Uh, also, lots of high vaccination rates in Hong Kong. But with the Chinese vaccines, which the best we can tell, and we just don't have good data, the best we can tell, they're not very effective against Omicron and a lot of these other variants. And so you are seeing very kind of difficult, I would say almost at times draconian measures being put in place to try to mitigate against spread in a population that's gotten vaccinated, but not necessarily with vaccines that are as effective as they need to be. You're going to see that kind of variation because it's not just China and Hong Kong that have gotten those vaccines, parts of Latin America, parts of Africa. And those populations are potentially quite vulnerable to more surges and infections. And so it's a complicated picture out there, and it really will vary from country to country, almost community to community. Last thing I'll say is for employers, I think the very best thing you can do if you want to protect your workforce is get them vaccinated and try to get them vaccinated with reasonably high quality vaccines. Uh, they are becoming more widely available. And I think that's probably the most important strategy for keeping a healthy and productive and effective workforce. Well, that's great. And I'd love now to transition to your work at Brown University and in particular, the study you and your team there are conducting on long COVID. So we'd love for you to describe the study to the audience, who's involved, what's it about, and, and any insights sure. so far. Yeah, so the long COVID initiative that we have launched here at Brown about six months or so ago, really driven by the fact that we could see really a, a large number of Americans who've gotten infected over the past two years who continue to suffer pretty substantial levels of symptoms, disability from COVID. 
the estimates of what proportion vary a lot. I think it's probably in the kind of 10 to 15% range. The severity of that varies a lot. For some people, it you know it's moderate, it's annoying, it's difficult. For other people, it's downright debilitating. And we don't know a lot about either what's causing it or what we should be doing from a policy point of view. So there's some very good research groups doing kind of clinical studies, uh, studying these people, trying out therapeutics. We decided what we really wanted to focus on was not that clinical part necessarily, but to focus on the broader implications and the kind of policy stuff that comes out of it. And so, for instance, employers, uh, as they're bringing people back to work, as they're re-engaging their workforce a bit more, they're finding a lot of their employees are suffering in substantial ways. What do you do with that? How do you help employees? What are the policy changes you need? What, what do you need from government? What do you need from insurance companies? Uh, what do you need from the healthcare providers? There's just these incredibly important issues that are coming up as a part of this. So using a combination of you know round tables, expert consensus, uh, pulling together evidence, surveys, we're trying to understand both what are, how are companies, you know, businesses, uh, government, uh, health systems, how are they approaching and managing this? What are best practices? And, and what kind of policy changes do we need to help America, once we are out of this pandemic, really manage the long-term effects of all of this infection and illness that we've seen? That's such an important study. It's going to be fascinating to see you know, the outputs and the recommendation that you all put forth. Any early indications of what some of those recommendations might be? Or, yeah. or what are you hearing from the study participants thus far as, as really some of the primary areas of concern and focus? I think part of it is we're learning that the healthcare system is largely, you know, sort of ill-prepared. We don't have good diagnostic codes. So, so you see a patient in clinic with long COVID and Often people don't know how to even deal with that, how to code that, how to how to flag that. So, so one is we need a health system that begins to really be able to shift and manage and ident- help identify these patients. That's critical. And we heard that from both a lot of providers and payers. From businesses, we're hearing uh, that, you know, they found that a lot of their employees were able to manage working from home. But as they're bringing people back to work, they're finding that a lot of people are really struggling uh, because of these symptoms of having to commute in and spend the day in the office. And companies, I think, are just like the rest of us. This is not a, this is not a blame thing. Like all of us are just really taken back by the severity and even the frequency with which they're seeing these things. And my take is, you know, we don't want every firm, every company to sort of wing it and try to figure this out on their own. So we need to try to start providing guidance. We need guidance from the government. We need the standard tools we use in these contexts to start helping companies. My hope is over the next few months, we'll start being able to give some more concrete recommendations there. That'll be important. Uh, there are all sorts of other issues that come up that you know I had barely thought through And I, when we started this project. I mean, a lot of these people got infected at work. Well, what does that mean in terms of workers' compensation and, uh, and, and those kinds of things? And we have a very complex ecosystem by which we deal with these things in our country, and we've just never quite dealt with a pandemic in that context. So I think a lot more coming, but what you're going to see is, I think, real action to start sort of collecting the data and becoming more systematic about these things. 
it's just the few high level things that you touched on are so critically important. And the magnitude of those is extensive on, you know, an individual and their family across a workforce, across a community and a society. So it will be, I'm, I'm sure, just so fascinating to see, again, the recommendations that you put forth. And I imagine it's long COVID, but we are now two years into this pandemic, which is in the grand scheme of a virus and a, and a you know, pandemic situation, not probably quote long enough, right? It's still short time in terms of the duration of this virus that will be with us for probably, you know, many, many years to come. So do you envision that you will do subsequent phases of the study to assess what what does long COVID look like two more years from now, five more years from now? It's obviously uh, something we're going to have to track for a while. And there are some critical questions that we can only begin to think about now. Like, there is a big question out there of what does long COVID look like in vaccinated people? We think it's less. We think it's less severe, um, but we don't know. And that that work needs to be done and really sorted out. And there's been very little work really understanding this in a vaccinated population. And then tracking people over time and tracking businesses over time and, and figuring out how are people coping, how are companies coping, how are, um, how are government policy changes helping or at times not helping. So this is not a, you know, one time you do a, a, bet, a bit of analysis, you put out reports, and then you go home. Uh, this is really work that we're going to have to do for the long run because the implications of this are long term. I would love to uh, perhaps close by asking you, you touched on many glimmers of hope in, in some of your comments, but, you know, if you could kind of signal to the audience, what gives you the most sense of optimism as you think about the months ahead and, and perhaps the year ahead as, as we've been through what's been a really brutal past couple of years with lots of twists and turns and unexpected things that have come our way as you think about your future outlook? What gives you a lot of hope and optimism? Yeah, thank you for asking. Pandemics have been with us, with human societies, as long as there have been humans around on this planet. They last for different lengths of time, often they do last for a decade, five years, 10 years. Typically three to five is a pretty common time period where there's just a lot of infection, suffering, death. And you know, if you think about the 1918 uh, influenza uh, pandemic, the Spanish flu as people call it, the estimates of like 50 million people around the world, maybe more died at a time when the world's population was much, much smaller. So this has always been with us. So then the question is, so what gives me hope? What gives me hope is our ability as humanity, as humans to respond and adapt. And really it's our ability to use science. I mean, my gosh, within a year, we've developed highly effective vaccines. Uh, within about 18 months, we had a whole host of therapeutics. Yes, it's not as fast as I would like. Yes, I'd like to have production of hundreds of millions of doses happen overnight. There's some things I'd love to go even faster. But if you take a step back and ask, like, how have we done on those issues, on the issues of where science has been able to respond, our response has been, I think, nothing short of fantastic. And the reason that gives me hope is that, you know, we may get future variants. We very well might. We might get ones where we're going to make changes to our vaccines. That's okay. We've got the ability to do that. We've, we've got great scientists and our capability as, as humanity to come together, to work out the science and data and, and come up with solutions is so impressive uh, that that makes me feel very confident that whatever Mother Nature throws at us, we will figure out how to manage it.
Well, that was great. And it really is remarkable when you look back at all the things that we have accomplished in a relatively short period of time. It is remarkable. In the moment, it doesn't feel that way. But when you do sum it up the way that you did, it is truly remarkable. And to your point, we can do this. We've done it already. We can do it again if we need to, and we likely will need to. And so that sense of resilience and that we have adapted is is really important for us all to remember um, the next time we should get thrown another curveball. Well, I am filled with optimism that we have people like you at the helm advising us and doing the good work that you and your team are doing. So Dr. Ja, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a real privilege to speak with you. Thank you for having me here. It was a pleasure. And the last thing I will leave people with is I think it's been difficult, but I think the good news is we have all the tools to manage our way out of this. And I'm very optimistic that we will. I've been speaking with Ashish Ja, Dean of the Brown University School of Public Health. Dr. Jha is leading a team of researchers studying the impact on long COVID with the goal of translating and sharing the latest evidence, equipping employers with tools to work with impacted employees, as well as developing policy recommendations. Dr. Jha has recently been named as the new White House COVID-19 response coordinator. I'm Ellen Kelsey. This podcast is produced by Business Group on Health with connected social media. If you like what you heard, please consider sharing and leave us a review.